listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a free virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. It is my pleasure this week to welcome back Dr. Kathy Platzman, who is a developmental and clinical psychologist from Floor Time Atlanta. She is an expert on the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, and not only is Dr. Platzman an expert DIR training leader, but she's the director for, of clinical training for the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, ICDL, and she is also a Fielding Graduate University faculty member. Welcome back, Dr. Platzman. Hi, thanks very much. It's wonderful to be here again. And I'll let our listeners know that we got to meet in person for the first time in March in That's New right. York City at the Rebecca School and ICDL uh, conference. And it was great to finally, finally speak in person after meeting you online so many times. Same here, uh, Daria. It was just a thrill. And I didn't know it at the time. Maybe nobody did. But it was right before COVID made us go home and stay home. So my last time of normal interaction was with you. So uh, I think of it fondly for many reasons. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a different format than our usual podcasts. We actually have two topics and a parent question at the end. So um, I think what we were going to do is stick to one topic, but then uh, we couldn't decide which topic. So we thought, why not throw in both? So the first topic is about the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR Floor Time, as a multidisciplinary approach and what that means because Dr. Platzman is part of Floor Time Atlanta, which is a multidisciplinary um, place, clinic, I don't know what, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and also coming up is the 24th annual DIR Floor Time Conference, which the, the theme this year is Floor Time All the Time and Everywhere. And Dr. Plasman, you will be presenting on Thursday, November 12th, two different time slots, 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern on transdisciplinary work with a DIR framework, opportunities and challenges. So I thought this would be a good time to preview your conference presentation without giving away everything. So people have a reason to come to the conference, which uh, I will link to at affectautism.com. I, I encourage all parents, practitioners, anyone interested in DIR to attend the conference. There will be presentations throughout the month of November by all kinds of practitioners, clinicians, and parents, including me. Um, so that'll be up on the website. But I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you is what is the difference between, or are they the same, between multidisciplinary approach and transdisciplinary work? There's also a third term, interdisciplinary approaches. Yes. Um, from my reading of the literature, they all mean the same thing. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I've actually asked the same question, Daria, and wondering what the answer is. Um, I think most people use transdisciplinary these days. 
Uh, but I do think they basically mean a lot of people coming at the same problem from their own discipline, coming together with a common goal, but from different disciplines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, my understanding as well, which you can elaborate on based on what you guys do at Floor Time Atlanta, is that we have a child come in. So let's use the example of my son who had an autism diagnosis when he turned three and we were all of a sudden um, given occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy. Um, and then later, I also at the same time had just discovered floor time. So later realized that the ideal as described in Engaging Autism by Dr. Stanley Greenspan and Dr. Serena Weeder, the ideal is the um, multidisciplinary approach, which is why we're called Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning. Ideally, all of these services would be under the same DIR framework where all of the practitioners have that understanding of where is my son's developmental level, what are his individual differences, his sensory processing profile, family situation, any other factors that come in to make him and the family unique, and then the relationship. So all of these um, professionals working with my son have developed a relationship with the family, me, my husband, my son, and with each other, and they all are working on the same goals and understand all of the challenges and and successes, et cetera, and they meet regularly to discuss this. That's my understanding. And it's a, it is a, you, you describe it perfectly. Um, the idea that a lot of different disciplines can own a specific problem is uh, we're used to it. In the DIR world, we're always talking to parents. Uh, we're always talking to OTs. We're always talking to mental health people, educators. Um, bringing people into the fold, so to speak. Um, and we can be surprised sometimes, uh, us died in the world DIR people, when somebody from another discipline enters that arena of a team meeting, for example, and uh, gets a little tentative or doesn't know what really is happening here. Um, but this tradition of bringing dis different disciplines in, everybody working from the same, at the same problem from their own discipline, was very much the, the approach that Stanley Greenspan used as he began all this work. He and Serena Weider came from this tradition of uh, infant, uh, infant mental health movement um, from zero to, zero to three. They were big in that world. And zero to three was more or less a mental health model. I'm sorry, uh, infant mental health models were mental health models. And what Stanley did was he said, well, it's, it's a mental health model, but all these other disciplines know so much about it. So he used to have annual meetings with multidisciplines and he used to have them right at his house. It was called, they were called the barn. Um, and, and in the barn, he would have all these different disciplines talking about the same case where someone would bring up a case and an OT would comment, a speech therapist would comment, different people. So he always said children, especially with developmental disorders are so complicated, it, it takes a village. Those were not his words, but he said, everybody has something to contribute. And so that became part of the model and took those infant mental health models and made them richer, more intense, deeply. Another thing that he added to this 
which in a strange way COVID is bringing to light in a different way, is he said, this is a parent-mediated model. Parents are the cornerstone. You read that in all the books that he and Serena wrote together is, is this kind of idea that parents are the head of the team. Now, some clinicians, some parents take that very seriously and others, you know, can be a lot of variations on that. Because we've all been working online a lot, because we've coached parents more than we've treated children, speaking for myself, for example, it brought back into high relief that part of the model that parents become part of the disciplines. I mean, you could say, is it, is it, a, is it a profession to be a parent? And in fact, on a team, a DIR team, the parent knows that child better than anybody. So in a way, uh, the, the, the current way we look at, at DIR as a multidiscipline approach is even richer and deeper uh, because of this coaching part that had to be potentiated and supported differently during the pandemic and it's still ongoing. So the trick with DIR is, um, and trick I guess is putting in quotes, but the thing that makes multidisciplinary work so easy for us is that um, we are humbled by other people's opinions and, other, and how much somebody from another discipline can actually bring to it. But the magic is the D and DIR, the developmental levels, the FEDCs, the functional emotional developmental capacities, burst through every single discipline. Every discipline from their own discipline can work on regulation and co-regulation and reciprocity and problem solving and you know on and on and on right up the developmental ladder. So a speech therapist may have her own goals. She may say these are the goals that our speech therapy has. How can I help pre-linguistic skills. How can I keep that body regulated? How can I get in there and co-regulate? Then maybe I can work on my, 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 um, my own particular goals. So it's not a stay in your own lane. We assume you're staying in your own disciplinary lane, but have a goal that every discipline can work on, maybe a little bit differently, maybe with different tactics, but, but our own, but our, but the goals are the same. So the it's almost like a, a sense of euphoria when you can get in a multidisciplinary team because you've been struggling so hard from your own discipline to do X. And then the speech therapist comes in and says, from a speech therapy point of view, this is how I would work on X. And you just go like, I didn't realize you could approach it. It doesn't change what you do. You're still working from your own discipline, but you've now got the, you've now got the speech therapist whispering in one ear saying, this is a... A, a look at it from another point of view. So again, you feel enriched, you feel a little bit humbled, a lot humbled when you hear other people talking about the same general goal, even though our specific goals can be discipline, it can be right out of our own disciplines. Does that make sense? I think that's- Abs Absolutely. And mm -hmm. if I think about our own son's case where he might have articulation challenges with a speech language pathologist and as he's becoming more verbal, then we refer to the OT who has said, oh, you know, there's auditory processing um, challenges going on and uh, certain ways in which our son needs movement will affect his regulation mm -hmm. and ability to communicate, etc. So that's an example of the OT and the speech working it's in such tandem. A and it's a great example. I, I do use this when I teach sometimes that if I know because, an, because a speech therapist told, has told me 
this child has a lot, takes a long time to process what you say. So speak slowly and don't ask for a response really quickly. Give him some time. And I know I talk fast. I can, and if I slow down my speed with a kid like that and I don't get panicked because he hasn't answered my question verbally or non-verbally, if I can have that patience that the speech therapist told me about, all of a sudden I can work on my mental health goals at a much more, in a much more effective way. So I don't feel like I'm being a speech therapist at all. I think people, um, first of all, uh, DIR is not the only transdisciplinary model. Community development, a lot, a lot of the social psychology type uh, uh, projects will have multidisciplines. And there's, there's a bunch of ethical codes about it and a lot is written about its power. It, it, as many problems as some people may see with it, the, the outcome is usually richer, deeper, and better in a transdisciplinary um, approach, even if it's a urban planning uh, goal rather than a, um, a mental health goal, for example. Uh, although people who worry about transdisciplinary approaches, you know that expression, I know just enough to be, I just, I know just enough about something to be dangerous. You know, you know just enough, and so you think, uh, you know, one danger that you can have is if, if you know, if, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail and you keep hitting it, hitting the wrong thing. But that's not a danger if you're on a DIR team that meets regularly. So um, again, a lonely, a lonely clinician is not what this is about. It's a clinician with a lot of peers and a lot of people um, making sure that you don't, that you're not dangerous, so to speak. Um, when I'm in a, when I'm in some of our team meetings, a, a common question that I hear is, would it be okay if, you know, so if, a, if an OT is there and knows that child's body better than I do, and I wonder, is this an activity that would help me work on engagement with this kid, or would it be an activity that would be so difficult for that child that he wouldn't have time for engagement? Um, and OT, I, I, I want to hear what an OT has to say about that, or I want to hear from my speech therapist colleagues what that child does with how that child processes information and how that speech therapist would see what the pre-linguistic skills are that need support so that I can do my mental health work more effectively because I'm bypassing the kid's weaknesses and using the, the kid's strengths. Now, when I say kid, not all my clients are kids. Um, it's just as true with adults as, as anything. Um, yeah, so that's why I like it. I also like the idea of, uh, I mean, I, I come from, part of my background is data analysis and evaluation and stuff like that. So, and test construction, survey construction. So you think about the concept of aggregation. So if you give a survey to somebody and you ask one question, do you like going to parties yeah. to measure the concept of whether you're extroverted or introverted? you'll get a range of responses. But if you ask five items, do you like going to parties? You feel obligated to say hi when you meet somebody in, a, in an elevator who's a stranger uh, or walking down hallway. Um, do you in, prefer going to parties or staying at home reading a book, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have a number of items and you aggregate them together and take the average. That'll be more accurate than just a single item on its own. And I like to think of that in terms of multidisciplinary approaches, I could just go to one therapist for five years and that one person gives feedback on my child's progress 
or I have this wonderful scope of eyes um, looking in from all their different professional opinions and seeing different ways to help my son's development flourish. And I feel so grateful doing this podcast because I get all of you guys to give me tips. <laughs> well, I'll tell you um, something, Daria. I love listening to this podcast for very similar reasons. Um, I love hearing uh, what Eunice Lee has to say about parents. I love to hear what Ira Glovinsky has to say about interoception. I mean, it's just like tuning in to my virtual team uh, of, of people who are dealing with the same issues I am dealing with, but they're saying it differently than I say, or they're thinking about it. And it makes me feel more confident and, and, and when, I, when I treat a child and a family. Um, it makes me feel like I've got some support, even if it's virtual, to know that other people have been dealing with this issue, whatever it might be, and this is how they approach it. It's very calming. It's very calming. Um, also, back in the day before the pandemic, when we would have a lot of physical team meetings, um, it would also be not only that feeling of networking, but this kind of euphoria, I will use that word, where you realize everybody recognizes that this particular FEDC needs a lot of support. And so I'm going to have permission to support it even better, and maybe in a few new ways. But if everybody says, this child is stuck on reciprocity or something like that, and we think it's his body that's getting in the way, oh, you know, I just want to go to work and try harder and harder so I can tell the team, this worked today for me, this didn't work for me today. So no more lonely clinicians with transdisciplinary work. Yeah, and, and I have the same experience from the parent perspective. The more people I hear um, talk about promoting social problem solving, for instance, the more I understand, oh, that's what that other person meant. I didn't really get it the first time they said it, but when Virginia Spielman said it this way, and then, you know, when Maude LaRue said this that way, oh, now I get what Dr. Tippy was saying a year ago or whatever right, it is. Right. Um, so it, everybody says, says it in a different way and, and uh, just adds so much more complexity and, and richness to the understanding of what we're trying to do and, and how, and most important for parents, how do I do this? I now read all the floor time stuff. I understand the model, I think. And now I don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And when you start to hear tips from different people, it starts to then make sense. Oh, and then you practice it with your child and you say, oh, I just saw them do what that person gave an example of. And I didn't know what they meant, but now my child did it. That's what it meant. <laughs> I can even hear it in your voice. It's really exciting when you finally get that click feeling in there. And, and I think transdisciplinary work makes that much more likely to happen. <clears throat> you know, you can hear the same person or all different people talking about the same thing. And one of those people is going to resonate with you and you're going to be able to hold it, keep it in a, in a real place in your heart. It really hits home. Yeah. Absolutely. And I hope by doing all these different podcasts that parents listening get the same experience, as well as practitioners like you hearing your other colleagues um, gives you that experience of your virtual support network. Yes, it really is true. Yeah. And I, and I thank you so much. It, it's just a wonderful thing you do with Affect Autism. It's wonderful. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And it certainly helps my own learning. 
And um, it's, it's good to share that with other parents. Um, is there anything else about the transdisciplinary that you'd like to mention before we move on to our next topic? Um, I think we've, I think we've said it all. Um, I just- For more, for more again, ICDL conference coming up in November, I'll encourage people to sign up. <laughs> yep. uh, I'll be presenting with my two um, lovely colleagues, Mary Beth Starks, Stark, speech and language pathologist and Millie Cordero, occupational therapist. Um, all three of us are training leaders too for ICDL. So we are all, we are looking forward to it. And I think it's a little bit early to know, you know, you said this is a sneak preview and it definitely is a sneak preview, but we haven't really committed to what we're going to say yet. So um, I, I can guarantee you that there'll be more, there'll be more about this topic when we talk about it in November. Excellent. Well, uh, the next topic that we're going to cover today is something that Dr. Platzman has felt very, very strongly about that she really wants to get across. And it, it is something that comes up and I notice it in the parent support groups I do with ICDL, this concept of parent guilt. Mm -hmm. And we did do a podcast. I can't remember how long ago it was, Kathy, but we did a podcast called Avoiding the Blame in Floor Time. And you had talked about a few different things you had mentioned the locus of control where, where parents feel that if they're a victim and nothing is your fault, then, then, you know, there's nothing you can do. You, you don't have any control, but if you can understand that you do have control to start from where you are now and have an impact on your child's life, then that makes you feel much more empowered and is less likely to lead to depression and other, um, give you more energy for the present moment. Mm -hmm. And just to, to embrace these things as learning moments and realize that even though we may not have been on the right track earlier, and, and I'll use the example of parents that maybe have been doing harsher behavioral models with their children for years and switched to floor time, they might feel guilty or feel like they made a mistake. And Dr. Platzman mentioned in that podcast how we should take these as learning moments and realize there are no mistakes, we can always move forward. Um, and so uh, with you, you mentioned the podcast with Eunice Lee, who's a social worker, we talked a little bit about um, the parent piece, but I know you wanted to dive in it a little bit further. And as a psychologist, and in the mental health realm, uh, you will have a lot of insight into that feeling of parent guilt. Well, I might, I also am a parent. And so um... You know, I'm a parent of two, I guess, typically developing adults, uh, children at this point. Um, and so I know that no matter what happens to them as adults, no matter how much I can worry about them or whatever happens to them, uh, if something bad happens, I'm going to feel guilty. So it's not, there's nothing special about a developmental challenge that makes parents um, guilty. You know, it's, I think it's just part of the deal that when you have a child and you love somebody and you're attached to them, when something happens for good or for bad, it affects you. It gets right under your skin and you, and you really can feel very deeply. But um, as I unpack this and, and the idea of throwing parents under the bus, if that's a good expression for this, often happens when a, we all have a problem 
we all have a child with a problem and that could be the parents have the child, but the clinicians also feel that they have that child. And so clinicians can try X, they can try Y, they can try over and over and over again. They can go to multidisciplinary team meetings and come up with some ideas and they'll try it. If it doesn't seem to work right away, everybody, the natural reaction is to feel a little guilty. What did I do? What did I do wrong? We, um, we have a way to really blame ourselves for things that either it's a wasted time because there's nothing you can do about it or it really, there's nothing wrong. And it's just the pace of, of what's, the pace of improvement is not happening or something like that. Um, again, I think the pandemic is making all this a little bit stronger in all of us because we're so stressed and we're, we're, we've got more burdens on us. Parents have a tremendous number of burdens on them anyway, and now pandemic adds a little bit more to it. So guilt comes up again. Um, so I guess, Daria, the, the, the stuff that I like to talk about is blaming yourself when you're a parent and things aren't going well and you realize that you're recriminating yourself. You keep saying, why was I so dumb? Why did I let that happen? Why didn't I know? We're using our 2020 hindsight all the time. Um, that, first of all, I, I want everybody to know that it's okay to do that. There's no way not to do that. It's part of being a human. But when it costs you your energy, uh, when it costs you your ability to problem solve because you're too down in the dumps to, to think it through, it's a time to really be your own best friend. Take yourself aside and say, uh, anything that is going to get you your energy back. If, if you stop to look at it like who's ruining your flow, who's taking that away from you, um, um, you can maybe pull it, pull it together a little bit. Um, these are the things I think that often help parents who are feeling that guilt. Remember to notice, if you're anxious, you're worried about the future you're saying, what if this would happen? I'm really worried that that will happen. And if you're that kind of a person, you, you tend to be a worry, you tend to be anxious. But if you're, if you're trying to resolve the past, trying to fix things that already happened, that's depressing. So depressed people tend to look into their history, anxious people tend to look into their future. And so you want the right balance of making what you tried in the back to not be toxic. So you can look backwards and say, I guess I didn't know that then, or I was making my best choice then, or I was feeling, I didn't have the energy to do that then. You just name it and it's over. It makes your body feel a little bit better about it. We know from brain science now that when you imagine something from your brain's point of view, it's really happening. So I can imagine a horrible thing and I'm gonna feel very down. I think those of us that walk through the day um, criticizing ourselves, we feel terrible at the end of those days. I mean, I've, I've gone through whole days when I said, there you go again. Okay, I wonder when you won't get that done on time. You know, all those sarcastic things that you can say to yourself, I feel lousy at the end of that day. And I've tried the experiment actually, where you go through the day and you've got a problem and you, and you say to yourself, well, I don't know what the solution is yet, but I know I'm going to try. Uh, and you say things that are more like that. I have more energy and more pep at the end of that day because my brain has been uh, bathed in good, good neurotransmitters throughout the day, right? Uh, 
So we can always say to ourselves, I can't change the past, but I can change what I think about the past and I can change how much I think about the past. Um, sometimes when you look at the past fondly, um, you get that boost, you get that tremendous uh, fast forward button feeling where everything was just great. But if you look back from the past of if only I had, if only I had, if only I had, that doesn't, that takes your present energy away. So we've got a fulcrum. We've got the past, we've got the future, and our heads are the fulcrum right in the middle of that. It's what we make of the present moment. Can we gather the energy to appreciate this little moment? So that's my first thing to say about parent guilt. Try not to live in the past. It doesn't do any good. Try to see where your energy is going and see if you can get some of that energy into the present moment. Um, so that's, I, I guess that would be the first thing that I would think, think uh, is a good thing to do. That's the kind of name it to tame it. I have a colleague that says that all the time. Oh, this is me feeling down. This is me not being able to get my head out of the past. That even that little, even that little perspective change is enough to give you a little bit more energy in the moment. Um, then there's the other thing to think about, uh, and that is a lot of parents with kids with developmental challenges or conditions um, are in a very strange situation. The situation is society at large is not ready to help you. We're ready to help you with a typically developing child. But if you've got a, a kid that needs a little different variation on typical, as a society, we don't go very far to say, welcome, welcome everybody. Neuro, neurodiversity is the name of the game these days. And I think, I sincerely think, the 20 years from now, this is going to be a more accepting of diversity society that we live in. But right now, it's not that way. So of course, you as a parent are going to feel, I keep trying and it doesn't work. But what you're doing is you keep trying and it's working, but society doesn't see it as such. So you have to become maintaining your own goals and don't be so aware of society's strictures and goals. Um, uh, the speech, uh, Morten Gernsbacher, who's an academic, I think she's a speech therapist, I'm not sure. But anyway, she wrote a lovely article on reciprocity. And I think it was within that article, I may be wrong, but I think it was. She described a birthday party uh, for a child who loved garbage collectors. And um, that resonated with me because one of my kids used to fantasize about being a garbage collector. He thought they were just about the best. And, um, and so she said that her son's birthday was coming up and he was interested in the dump. So he invited his two or three fellow dump garbage collector lover friends and they went to the town dump and had a birthday party at the dump. Now, society is not ready for that. It's not like the town dump has a click on this button to set up your party the way a bowling alley will. But she was a tiger mom and she went in and she got this thing taken care of. And as described, I think everybody enjoyed it, including the people that ran the dump. Um, that's going against society in a heroic way. That's saying my child will be engaged. My child will have a good time. 
And I'm just going to not, I'm going to thwart society. I'm not going to go to the bowling alley because that would look good from society's standpoint and it would feel bad to my kid's standpoint. It takes quite a warrior to do all that stuff. Um, and it, I bring it up under the topic of parent guilt because I think it makes you feel proud of yourself. Um, if you can hold that pride inside yourself and not say, but the neighbors, what will the neighbors think? You're a hero. And I do think parents of developmentally challenged kids happen to be pretty good at it, um, but they happen to, but they also are in a society that never quite acknowledges it the way they should, you know? Um, so that, that I think just knowing that you're in a, uh, you're in a community that doesn't have all the, everything that you need that your typically developing kid does have everything, it can calm you down. In other words, know what game you're playing. Know that as a parent, you're going um, uphill in so many directions, including society can't, is not welcoming you with open arms yet. They don't know how to do it just yet. Um, every time I see a human interest story, I think I saw one the other day, um, Anderson Cooper did a piece on um, uh, companies that are, that are actively seeking uh, people on the spectrum and they're changing their interviewing techniques because they know that interviewing techniques don't work well with this population in general. And so they're, they're innovating it, not because they're trying to be kind, but because they, they are welcoming with open arms people with skills that tend to be associated with the spectrum. And um, that's the world we're going toward. So if, if parents can see that they are warriors they are providing very strong shoulders that other parents and future generations will stand on. You can change the meaning of the uphill battle all the time. And in fact, that changing the meaning um, it, it, of what this, this very tough day meant can sometimes really give parents their mojo back, their, their courage to go forward, um, their reason to, to reach out and, and make it a better day. So I guess that's another thing I wanna say about parent guilt is, is don't forget what a warrior you are. And just because you're used to society not welcoming you, don't forget to notice that that's taking some of your energy away and you can fight against it. Um, and of course, the, the, there are ironies all over the place here. Um, one dad told me once, uh, the moment my child was diagnosed, I instantaneously was the dad with the most friends in the whole wide world because I felt I was the friend of every father with a kid on the spectrum. And at the same exact moment, I became the loneliest person in the world because I didn't have time to reach out to my community. And so we had a parent, um, we had an ongoing parent support group and that's what he would say. He would say, now I'm finally making the time to be with all my best friends but I might not have time for another six months to come to a support group. So I love that the irony that he had, that he had noticed that his community got large and also shrank at exactly the same time for exactly the same reason. Um, so that I guess the summary of that point would be to, to try to get up to 10,000 feet and see what you're doing historically and see what you're doing for future generations and provide meaning for a, well, for a bad day and a good day is like, this is the weave of the fabric that we're in right now. Um, 
parents can get very down when ironic things happen. You know, they're good people trying to do the best thing and the worst outcome happens. And then you can see somebody that is not doing the best thing. They're not the easy, they're, they're not solid people, so to speak. And all of a sudden their kid prevails. Why does the idiot prevail? And why does the good person lose? Those are ironies. And uh, ironic lives are good lives. They're just filled with irony. And, and parenting a kid with a challenge puts you in that high risk to, for irony category. So that's another way to maybe hold the meaning of it. What would you say to parents who have lost that energy for the fight? Um, maybe they have been around family members who are just critical or don't understand or blame you for why your child has behavioral outbursts, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And you're just so sick of it. It's like, that's it. I don't even have the energy. I'm not even going to the grocery store anymore because I don't want people looking at us. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's easy to say, okay, take a break do these little things and then get up the energy to go back and fight again. But that's much easier said than done. Oh boy, you said it. <laughs> uh, and and it, 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 yeah, you said it, you just spoke for humanity right there. Um, I think one thing that happens is for different reasons, we, all of us cope slightly differently. Um, you know, I'll, I'll use, I'll use my husband as an example. Um, for him to get good energy, he, he, at the end of a day says in one way or another, this is what I worked on today, but this is what I have to do tomorrow. I'm the sort of person that I, around 8 p.m., I'm gonna to go to bed at 11. And I want my last couple of hours to be slowly winding down from a stressful day, right? So I wanna watch TV, I wanna knit, I wanna read a book, I wanna drink cocoa, I wanna do all those comforting things. So. I'm sitting there knitting while I'm watching TV, while I'm drinking cocoa, and he sits down and says, I don't know if we have enough money for our quarterly taxes. Good night. Well, he's just upset me, and I've just upset him because I gave him the evil eye. But, you know, why are you doing this to me? Now I'm going to be up all night. You know, that's an exaggeration of these little tiny moments that we will have where our two coping mechanisms are orthogonal to each other. One absolutely clobbers the other one. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure if he gave the example, he would be throwing me under the bus too. So how do we deal with that? Okay, this is what happens all the time is that I'm gonna give advice to a parent as if that parent were me. When that parent may be much more like my husband who, you know, so you to know yourself, it sounds like a cliche, but every time we have a kid with special needs is an opportunity to know ourselves well. And the more you know yourself, the more you can be your own best friend. Again, here we go with the cliches, but uh, if you really know how you cope, then you really can be your own best friend. And I can really say to my husband, using myself as the, the hero here in this story, look, I know you want to tell me about that, but today I'm a little stressed. So really I'm gonna watch Mickey Mouse cartoons right now. <laughs> you can join me or you can, you know, um, if you love each other and you can say that to each other lo lovingly, there'll be some flexibility there. Uh, so you have to know yourself. If you don't know yourself, it's worth the exploration. And I can hear all parents say to me, and I've got time for the exploration. Oh, I'm gonna take a hot yoga class. Yeah, give me a break, right? 
you're never going to do that stuff. But little things where you collect who you are, there are many, and, and there are many people um, that when something bad happens or they have something that they need to think about, they need to isolate, they need to comfort themselves down, they need to slowly let the information come in, they need time. Other people just go, while I figure out what's going on in my soul, I've got to have an action plan or I'm not going to feel good. So you can, am I action oriented or am I, do I have to get myself, one is an action orientation and the other is a satiation orientation. It's first I have to calm myself down, then I can think. Other people say, first I have to act, then I can think. Uh, or first I, first I have to act, discuss it with all these people I know, and then I'll be calm. Exactly. And then I can do my plan. Right. But I'll be over there having, you know, a cup of, a cup of coffee, a, a quiet book, and then I'll have the courage to look at it. Or, or I'll let my, I, I can say that more. Uh, it, I can comfort myself a little bit more. I think what happens when you do that, when you take some time and satiate yourself and collect your energy, um, you, you really are unconsciously working on it so that when you can say, okay, now I'm ready to open that file and see what I can do about this. You have more, you, you, you can, you all of a sudden can generate more ideas. But if you had tried lickety split to just attack it right away, you might've done something that it will, you then have to undo. So know your style. And there are a million, like there are a million ways to do it. One of them is to get some therapy, but again, who has time? The internet is actually quite helpful in this regard. I, I'm a, I'm a proponent of for, of uh, taking personality inventories online, basically because they kind of make kind of like horoscopes, in a way. They may, but they give you something to think about. Am I really that person? So anyway, um, Karen Gilt is. I, I don't uh, know if you know Kathy that I have my master's in personality psychology. See, there you go. That's why you're such a good coper. You know yourself more than average. I you love could, it. I could, uh, I could give you some personality assessments if you'd like. No, I'm just kidding. Sure, throw them at me. I'll take every one of them, right? <laughs> or I, I shouldn't say that because I, I don't work in a clinical um, capacity. <laughs> but if you tell me what your results were, I, we could have a lovely discussion. Okay. How's All right. That? All right. <laughs> I will. Uh, I like the way you brought up self-awareness, though, because we talked about it, uh, Eunice and I talked about it um, in terms of, you know, us having awareness about, you know, uh, the parents' awareness in floor time and, and helping foster their awareness and attunement with their child and things like that. So this kind of takes it a step further. So it's, it's some good, uh, what do they say, good bites to chew on? <laughs> little nibbles <laughs> well i hope so um yeah it's one of my it's one of my more passionate topics really um because i think parents are the most the the people who know the best and the most about their child and they're often considered the least important person on the team you know and it just the again talk about irony that always just strikes me as the most ironic thing um, to depend on a parent's gut almost never uh, is the wrong thing. It's always the right thing. And so um, I might have my suggestions, but I always put them past the parent who will intuitively know whether they're going to work or not 90% of the time. 
And there's another piece of self-awareness because I, I notice even interacting with a lot of parents that there are those who absolutely have that gut instinct and are assertive about it mm-hmm. and others who are really seeking answers and support. And so they want to ask questions about everything that comes up with their child without, you know, trusting their gut instincts. So sometimes I'll say, well, what does your gut tell you? Or what do you feel? What do you think it is? Just to see, because it, there's this tendency to think that the experts know better when really we're the experts on our own children. And we exactly. might have this information supplement and oh, that now I understand why my child does that. But I always had this hunch about my child doing this thing. And then you get information about it. It's true. It's like if you look at a big circle and what, what the parent knows is everything about one child. And what the clinician knows is a few things about a lot of children. Like I can tell you on average when somebody is supposed to speak, what the motor milestones are. I've maybe seen 5,000 children in my clinical practice for a few hours. Um, So I can tell you a lot about that, but I can't tell you almost anything about your child. So if we can find the overlap of what you know about your child and what I know about lots of children, and we can work in that overlap, we'll be a good team. Yeah. And I think parents have to realize that is important because uh, they always want to know oh, based on your opinion, when do you think my child will blah, blah, blah. And every child is so different. There's no way to answer that. Um, All we can do is provide these great conditions and say, well, in many cases, children like this tend to do this in many cases, but it doesn't mean that's the way it's going to be for your child. So (laughs) I think that that, um, trusting your gut and, and just doing what feels right and and making sure you gel with the people that you work with and yeah. everybody has that same idea and just provide, be confident that you are doing everything you can and the child and, and will, let, and let, will and flourish let, when they flourish. And let go. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, one thing that I'll just bring up very quickly, cause I, I don't know if you know anything about it, but um Five years ago, I had taken this grief recovery specialist mm-hmm. certification, and I'm in the process of doing the advanced certification so I could do this method online. And it's an action-oriented program. It's an education piece. It's very different than grief counseling per se, but I want to bring it into the realm of parents who, who parent children with disabilities. So it, it's really an action program that you take. And the and when we say grief recovery, it's not talking about death per se. It's talking about anything that's happened that we grieve. So it could be parents who are divorced. It could yeah. be parents whose spouses died. It could be um, your family lost a pet and you're grieving the pet. It could be that a parent was in a career and lost their job, and now they're a full-time stay-at-home parent, and they're grieving that career and that identity they had from that career. Whatever aspect it is, the grief recovery method takes you to through a series of steps. It's all evidence-based practice over many years, and um, if anyone wants to know more about it, they can certainly look at affectautism.com under services or um, 
contact me through the website, but it's a step-by-step -step process where you literally go and, and track um, certain things in the past in order to let go of that. So I liked how you said you gave a few very constructive tips to parents of how to sort of label things and put that behind them. And if they want to delve into that further, I'm happy to discuss the grief recovery method with them on how to do that. Oh, that's wonderful. So, that's wonderful. Um, I wonder how you would respond to this then, Daria. Um, you know, I think anybody who has lost, let's just talk about death, for example, as the thing that we grieve. And anybody that's lost a loved one knows that you're very sad and you're very sad for a very, very long time. And society is often ready to move on before you are. And then at one point you realize your grief is lifting a little bit and you can have a few good hours, a few good days. And then as time goes on, all that processes, but you're still sad. You still have moments of sadness. You know, somebody that died 50 years ago still can make you sad in this day. That's a normal part of grief is this coming and going of sadness, but it's a normal part of life too. And I'd love to hear your comments about what grief recovery really means, because I don't think it means you'll never be sad again. No, and the beginning of the sessions start with going over the myths of grief. Ah, and so that that is exactly wonderful. one of them. And, and it's it's not that you forget, um, it's that. And, and I mean, um, there's a lot of people that do this method in terms of trauma. So perhaps they had a parent who was a drug addict and abusive to them and then died. Mm -hmm. And so, although part of you might feel relieved that they're gone, you still have all of this grief to work through and issues to work through around the pain that the person caused you. So it's really about, um, taking action oriented steps. And, and it's, it's actually an enjoyable process for me, even though it could also uh, be painful, remembering certain painful things, you're really trying to remember painful memories, joyful memories, and sort of labeling them and putting them, putting them in place and taking a few action steps to move forward mm -hmm. and complete. Uh, and, and it's about completing the recovery. So that's the term they use is complete, but it doesn't mean that you forget and it doesn't mean that you won't ever feel sad again, yeah. but it's sort of taking away um, the guilt. The, um, the guilt is a big part of it. So isn't that fascinating? Letting, and oh, and the reg any, any regrets and, and things like that, that just keep you brooding and in that ruminating state. That's what we're trying to complete in order to move forward. That's fascinating overlap, isn't it? With parent guilt. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. A lot there. Absolutely. Um, and I had a funny example, and I think I might have given this example if anyone's, if, if the one or two people that have listened to every podcast I've done might have heard this before, but I'll assume that most people haven't. I was at a parent support group for Autism Ontario, which is an organization in the province I live in here. And um, one of the caregivers who came is a grandmother. And she said, I am so sick of reading everybody bragging about their kids on Facebook and my kid did this and my kid on this. So I went out there and I posted my kid pooped in the toilet today. Yes. <laughs> and for her, that was a huge celebration. But just sort of you're mentioning, um, you know, parents standing up and being warriors and 
and doing those things like having the birthday party at the garbage dump. So yeah. I thought that was a great example of that is grandma saying, great. hey, he pooped in the toilet today and this is what we're celebrating. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's a good one. <laughs> and, you know, it might, you know, parents that aren't in our world might go like, oh, that's so gross. Or why, why would she say that? Because they have no clue, right? Um, yeah. They they dealt with diapers so many years ago or whatever oh, to be yeah. to be dealing with a, a preteen doing that or something like that. But exactly. um, that was a good example. And then the the other thing you talked about just goes so nicely in to uh, our final topic, which is a question from a parent. Sure. And this this is a bit possibly a bit more complicated. So how do we handle the complexity of getting together with several people? So it's always a challenge to find that right way, whether it's with family or meeting new potential friends. Uh, a lot of the parents and the parent who asks this question gets overwhelmed with having to explain their child and helping their child and other children trying to enjoy this gathering. Um, you know, now that we're in the pandemic, it's not happening too often, but this would be a good time to discuss it and, and figure out, you know, what are ways to challenge this once we're open, open up again? And is there any inspiration in the DIR model? So um, I know that this has come up so many times with me where, you know, whether it's being in a restaurant and, um, you're meeting up with somebody and then my son will knock over their coffee <laughs> or throw whatever little items, like maybe we brought some toys or, or something and plop it into their glass of water or, and you know, most of the people that, and this, this happened years ago, but most of the people that we get together with are, you know, oh, oh, that's okay. Don't worry. And then the restaurant brings a new coffee or whatever. Sure. Um, but what about when you're at, your siblings home for Thanksgiving dinner or you know having a big family gathering and then your child decides to knock over something breakable or knock over a lamp or and you know I'm not sure if if that would be the example that this parent is talking about but I'm just thinking in terms of my own life I have a little mover and a shaker guy and now he's 11 and a half and he's moving up those developmental capacities so I'm not as worried about that kind of stuff anymore but he certainly will do things that will turn heads for people that wonder oh what's going on with your kid and if I'm meeting new people I'm at the point now where I feel really comfortable just putting it out there so this would be my answer to the question I, I would say to the parent um just be upfront. So, you know, if it's someone you know well, they already know you have an autistic child. If it's someone you don't know as well, you say, oh, this is so-and-so, my child is autistic. And, yeah. oh, he absolutely loves this. So he's so excited and he's showing you how excited he is. So if my son all of a sudden sees something and jumps up and down and goes, oh, 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 you know, and I'll say, oh, look, you're so excited about this. And even though I'm talking to my son, it's really my way of conveying to the other family, this is what he does when he's excited, and it's normal for us. Yeah. So that well, kind of thing. As reading this um, question, there's so many layers to it, and it does overlap with a lot about what we were talking about. 
Um, but the most important word, I think, is inspiration. She asks, um, I don't know if it's possible to find some inspiration in the DIR model. So let's go for the inspiration and uh, specific tactics always welcomed. My gosh, that's like a multidisciplinary uh, council of everybody. What would you do in this situation would be one of the most riveting. I would love to listen to that. Right. Uh, in fact, I think that would be great. Wouldn't it be fun to have a panel of parents? Like, what would you do? Um, I think this woman would get a laugh out of it, but also some inspiration. But let's go back to the model and see if DIR can do anything. Because I think what happens, th there's, of course, Aunt Matilda over there who's saying, why aren't you using your napkin ring correctly? But let's eliminate that kind of problem and just ask this, how can anybody have fun here, you know, with a kid who... And, and I, would, I would say that she may describe her child one way, but what I would describe the people who are feeling awkward is they want to engage with your child and they don't know how to do it. Your, your beautiful example of being the translator for his, your child's nonverbal behavior means he's in this affective state, he's feeling this way, would calm me down because then I would say, hey, he's really excited about that and I am too. And I'd feel closer, I'd feel more engaged when before I would go like, well, what, what's going on there? So the inspiration that DIR model might have is to say that when you work on developmental functioning in, in the kind of the order that, that they're written in, if you work really, really hard at co-regulation, for example, you can kind of get engagement for free. If you work on engagement really hard, you kind of get reciprocity for free. You kind of work on reciprocity really hard and all of a sudden problem solving and perspective taking and affective range and all that kind of stuff comes in for free. So if you can ask, where is not your child struggling, but where is everybody else struggling? All of a sudden the picture goes, it's like from looking, looking at, at a problem with the wrong end of the binoculars. You know, you turn it around and everything is... Um, too, too small, you do it the right way and everything's big. But um, I would work on engagement and reciprocity from everybody. How do you make it easier for cousins who want to play with your kid to know that this behavior means X and this is, you know, uh, so, so that might be a little bit of inspiration is that everybody's developmental functioning at family gatherings or when anybody's nervous, is this, is this, is this person a person who's friendly? Um, you, you go right back down to engagement. Everybody's looking for safe, co-regulating engagement. So if you can be the broker of that for the people that are trying to make friends with your kid, you're liable to have a better time. You might not have the easiest time in the world, but if you're there making both sides see what the other side is coming where the other side is coming from, there'll be good moments and there may be pleasurable times. And another thing that I would maybe answer, you, you could talk about this question forever. It, it's a great question. The other thing is I'm always struck with families who are highly ritualized. Um, at Easter, we eat this. At Passover, we do this. At this holiday we do this. This is how we celebrate birthday parties. Because if there's a lot of, if you're lucky, lucky enough to come from a family with a lot of traditions that kids like, um, they can depend on those 
Because think of what a family gathering does is it takes care of engagement. It takes care of co-regulation and engagement for free because you repeat it over and over and over and over again. And you can tweak it over the years to know what you have to do in order to every, for everybody to calm down and engage. And then the good times can come after that. Then somebody can take a Lego and throw it in your wine glass. And it's just hilarious. It's okay. It's no big deal. Um, uh, so I would, I would tell, I, I think I would, I would advise thinking of this problem as an inside out problem. It's not how you help your child bridge the gap. It's how you help the other people bridge the gap to your kid. And that might, might be helpful. So this is another example of right what we started talking about, the multidisciplinary, oh. because um, I did a couple of podcasts with Christy Gozi in California, and it was just exactly about doing floor time with siblings and family. And another one was about um, getting to the symbolic in small groups. And, and she said just what you said in a different way. So she said the same thing, like let's sort of bridge the gap. And she said she focuses more on the neurotypical kids in the group than on the neurodiverse kids and helping them understand and facilitate, be that facilitator for everybody. So I didn't think of that as an answer, but that's, that's amazing. It, it's um, and, and, you know, Eunice and I spoke about that last week, too, about, you know, finding out if you're working with the child, it's so important to find out where the parents at and looking at their D, I and R. And then so this is the same type of, of yeah. thing that there, you're saying, just taking into account everybody's D, I and R. <laughs> yes. There's another way to think about it, too, which might be. When I have two children that are playing with each other, somebody says, who's the client? The children, you know, maybe one child has a neurodevelopmental disorder. Maybe the other child doesn't speak English well. With two kids playing, who's your client? My answer, the idea between them is my client. So if kid one wants to play dinosaurs and kid two wants to play grocery store, how am I going to make them, how are we gonna create an idea and how am I gonna protect that idea? So they may decide dinosaurs in the grocery store and then I'm, that's my client. Dinosaurs in the grocery store is my client. So if, if a child is at a gathering and all the cousins wanna come and play and your kid's not in the mood, how do you broker that so that there's an idea that we can collaborate on? Um, so it could be, I'm gonna go in a closet and one cousin at a time is gonna engage uh, you, you can make up something and see if you can protect that for a while, because with that will come this true, true interaction and intimacy. So set this, don't, don't be afraid to set the stage for engagement. If you can't get engagement, just set the stage for it. If you can't get reciprocity, just set the stage for it and see if that, that can help. So let's answer her question in a different way now, right before we sign off. Um, if she maybe wasn't even talking about her kid necessarily, maybe she's thinking about herself. I want to make new friends. I want to go and interact with my social group of people, but my child happens to be with me and I don't know how to do that because I'm looking to make friends with this other parent or person or whoever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know how I would think about that other than to say, 
if I have my if I have my child with me and my child's taking my attention, I don't know how much I can split my attention, but I can say to the person I, I, I want to meet, I have to split my attention now. Um, I, uh, my kid is really needing this right now. Translate for your kid, but don't don't not say what's really in your heart, which is I really want to meet you. And right now this is um, proving to be very difficult because maybe that other person will have a, a, a way to bridge the gap for you. Maybe that person would say, I want to meet you too, but right now we both need a snack. Let me go get you a snack tray. I'm making that up, but maybe it, it's okay to say, I want this and I can't have it right now. At least you've acknowledged it. And maybe somebody else can be clever. Maybe you can bring in your, your team and, and someone said, well, I've got an idea. Why don't I do this and then see if we can't get a visit in. So I think that's another example of what you called name it to tame it. And I, <laughs> yeah. I like this. I think I'm going to start trying this out. So um, yeah, I can just feel this parent's anxiety as you're describing the situation. Right. But my anxiety lessened when you gave the solution like, oh, I really want to talk to you some more. I really would like to continue. My child really needs my attention right now. And you didn't apologize for it. You didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry my child is this way. No, um, even though that might be how you're feeling inside, you might be feeling guilty, like, oh, I wish my child wasn't doing this or whatever. You're just naming it. You're just saying just in a it. neutral way, objectively, like, my child needs me right now. I'd love to talk more, but I need a few minutes. And if I think about it um, in times where that's happened with me, people have been, oh, no, 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 take your time. It's okay. Oh, do you want anything? I'll go grab us a coffee or whatever. So that's been my experience. And, you know, if, if people are giving you the stink eye, like, what's wrong with him or whatever, yeah. then, yeah. you know, you have to just understand that's coming from a place of ignorance. It's not necessarily that they're terrible people. They just may not be familiar with anything. And, and then if I feel that it's worth it, I might have a chat with that person later and say, you know, um, I noticed that you didn't really understand when my child did this. And can I just explain a couple of things to you about my child? And then if they're still jerks, then <laughs> so what? you move yeah. on. Yeah. Um, yeah. But some sometimes, I wouldn't even bother like, okay, they don't get it. And that's fine. I don't feel like right. explaining myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had one client who once told me um, when we want to have a good time in my family, what we do is we pull the curtains down because the neighbors would never understand that what we're doing is actually fun, you know, cause they'd be doing <laughs> floor time things like running around the house. And um, you know, uh, this was a, this was a mom who best, the best floor time ever was in a shower without the shower going on. You know, it's just, I just can't explain it to the neighbors. It's not quite worth my time. So she, she laughingly said, we need to pull the curtains down before we do that. Um, but to really, to really take your relationship with your child as important, but then to relate to somebody else when your child's needing you is a ridiculous dilemma. So you just say the dilemma. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's a great, great tool to leave our listeners with. And um, I thank you so much for, for talking over all this stuff today. And I'll encourage listeners to register for the ICDL conference. It's very inexpensive. It's a wonderful chance to hear hours and hours of presentations or just one or two, if that's what you prefer. The schedule is up at icdl.com under the 2020 conference. 
Um, and I'll look forward to listening to both of your presentations because there's another one that I didn't mention um, mm -hmm. as well as everyone else's. So if anyone has any um, questions or you want to review anything we discussed, I will be writing up what we talked about in the podcast um, in the blog post at affectautism.com. It's Kathy Platzman, and I will put links to other podcasts I've referred to in the past as well. So thanks again, and I hope we'll get together again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.